0: Therapy in Action
1: podcast with your hosts, Andrew Bort and Nick Jaworski. Research evidence-based practice and the tools and techniques to use that deliver the best outcomes for every patient, every time. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Therapy in Action podcast. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Bort, uh, also the Executive Director at the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. And I am here with Nick Jaworski, President for
0: the Institute. Appreciate you all joining us. And you can probably both hear, we have both been trying to get over some kind of respiratory illness for a week and a half now. So raspy throat, And I just delivered a whole certification course this week in Chicago. So stressing my voice out,
1: so we're going to try and get through this. (laughs) We're both powering through. Uh, Okay, so episode two is titled CBT, old dogs can in fact learn new tricks. So we're going to be discussing uh, CBT today and the best ways to execute CBT practice skills in a group therapy setting.
0: Yeah, such a good topic. I think it's a really important one and, you know, we can touch a little bit on some research. One of the interesting factors in the research here is we hear this all the time. CBT is evidence-based. DBT is evidence-based, right? ACT is evidence-based. But what about it is evidence-based? Why does it work? And the interesting thing is none of the research really seems to say.
1: Hmm. Well, yeah, CBT is, in fact, uh, evidence-based, meaning that research has been done in the field under controlled settings, Okay, so when we hear the term evidence-based, we can feel confident that the strategies have a robust scientific basis for their use. You know, for CBT, the the research has been measured not only in patient self-reporting but also through neuroimaging. And I, I know Nick, you don't really uh, agree with that so much because people's brains change all the time. But that really is the basis for CBT. The idea is you can change your brain. I like that comment. So I do also appreciate the fact
0: I'm not a big fan of fMRIs and brain imaging studies, whether it's for showing the effects of drug use or showing the efficacy of a particular modality because our brains are constantly changing. We have neuroplasticity in the brain. Anything that we learn, if I'm learning how to ride a bike, if I'm learning a new math skill, if my daughter is teaching me about the Southeastern United States and the history there, because that's what she's learning in social studies this week, my brain is changing. And we have not been able to identify specific brain changes related to a positive or negative effect. We're just showing the fact that it changed. So I'm not a huge advocate there. But what I think we want to get into is what do we think or what do we feel is actually efficacious about CBT? So great. We can go into the session. We can start delivering CBT. What does that mean? Is it just because you cover that topic? Is it just because you say you're doing CBT? Like, What about CBT is actually
1: effective? And I think that's where it would be very valuable to start. Absolutely. I mean, if you think back to our first episode for the listeners who uh, are returning, we looked at that article by Kathleen Carroll that stated most therapists and clinicians are not trained to deliver evidence-based practices, including CBT, effectively. So how do we make that delivery effective? And one of the Greatest ways we can do that is through deliberate skills practice, right? CBT, they are skills that people can use to better manage their life and influence their thoughts to change them from maladaptive to positive actions and behaviors. So, an example that we like to use is if you think yourself uh, walking into a destination in the forest, you know, the first couple times you're just walking over dirt, grass, crunching on leaves. But if you repeat that trip again and again and again, eventually, you're going to wear a groove into the dirt. And over time, over enough time, that groove is going to become a trench, right? And that's what's called the brain's preferred pathway. And I think we mentioned last time, the brain does this to to save energy, right? It it doesn't want to have to think, It's, it makes up only 2% of the body's mass, but uses 20% of its energy. So anytime that the brain can default to an unconscious automated process, it will. And that happens with all humans as we learn through repetition and practice.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's build on that a little bit. Let's take a real common CBT skill like uh, restructuring negative self-talk. So if we think about that, that negative self-talk when I have a failure, I messed up at work and suddenly I go on this spiral and I'm like, I'm a total loser. I can't do this. Why am I even trying? I should just give up. That's a mental pathway or to kind of use your analogy, it's been the worn groove in the forest. And so that's what we're used to going down. So what we want to do in the particular kind of micro CBT skill is restructure those negative thoughts, so that when I have a thought like that, instead of going down this really well-worn pathway of just self-recrimination and, you know, feelings that I, I, can't, I can't succeed or can't overcome this failure, we stop. And, you know, maybe to use a, a AA analogy, we say, you know, first thought wrong, first thought wrong. And that's actually pretty aligned with this idea of, of negative self-talk, right? So first thought wrong, stop can I do this? Was this just a one-time event, right? Am I really always failing? Am I always set up for failure? Or did I just make a mistake yesterday? Can I think of examples in my life where I have been successful and then use them to build confidence in myself to be successful again in the future? And so what we're doing is we're building that other pathway in the forest. And from a neurobiological standpoint in the research, this is called extinction. And I think the terminology is terrible because doesn't sound like it makes sense, right? What, what's, what's going to extinct? <laughs> but the thought is that the original pathway in the forest is kind of going extinct and then you're starting to use the other one. And so why it's a bad term is because it doesn't disappear, right? That original pathway starts to get overgrown maybe, but it is still there and we can go back to it. So we wanna build the new one as much as possible. With the realization that there is still this opportunity to slip back into old habits and old pathways, and we have to be uh, vigilant
1: because of that. In fact, it's a lot easier to fall back into that old pathway than than people might like to admit. I mean, that's why relapse is so common, recidivism is so is so common. You know, for people who are out of treatment after one year, two years, even three years. Because it is easy to fall back into those old habits, and so just because we have established a new pathway, uh, it doesn't mean it's time to to get lazy or to give up. Because that'll, you know, whether it's the addiction or the bad habit, it's sitting there in the parking lot doing pushups, waiting waiting for a weak moment.
0: We got we have research around that in terms of lengths of time, and that's really important for patients to understand is often we'll say, hey, a new habit starts about 30 days to build. You think about it with something simple, right? If I bite my nails when I'm stressed out and you say, I'm gonna stop doing that, but suddenly you get stressed out and you find yourself biting your nails, and you're like, darn it. (laughs) But that's how it works. When we look at the research on addiction, it's 12 months before people really start to stabilize in recovery. And that's important for them to know that there's all these neurobiological processes, right? Dopamine's coming back online. The receptors in the brain are starting to, again, be receptive to dopamine where they had been desensitized because they were overloaded potentially. So that takes 12 months to build. And then it's at the five-year mark that we see massive levels of success. So that pathway in the forest is taking at least 12 months to build, which is just really important, I think, for all of our patients and us,
1: um, trying to help provide treatment, understand. I think it's also important to understand that the length of time to establish an, a new habit or a new behavior actually can vary. So yeah, you're absolutely right. The The longer the time a patient has practicing a skill or in a healthy behavior pattern, the more likely it is that they'll be successful and it'll be e- can become easier over time. You know, so if you think the first time you run a mile, you know, maybe you're very, very winded, but if you run a mile every single day, it gets easier and easier, and you can go further and further.
0: So, I think what's also important, based on like the title that we're talking about here, right, is, you know, old dogs can do new tricks. There's a misconception that older people can't learn, and that's absolutely not true. What's happening is our, our forest analogy. So, I've been going through life with a particular viewpoint or a particular habit or a particular thought pattern for 30, 40, 50 years, the longer I've been doing that, the more entrenched that pathway is. So the harder it is for me to change. It's not that I can't learn new things. It's just harder for my brain to switch gears. And again, neurobiologically, we do a lot of pruning. As we get older, we kind of crystallize these pathways more and more. When we're younger, we're a little bit more flexible because we haven't pruned off as much and really consolidated those pathways. So it's really important to understand whether you are 15 years old or 65 years old, you can absolutely still learn, but the more entrenched that pathway is, the more difficult it is going to be for you to change. And again, helpful for patients to understand, look, if you've been doing this longer, it is going to be harder for you and potentially take you longer than the guy you're sitting next to who is 20 years younger or been doing that particular habit or thought pattern uh, 20
1: years less. And we can influence how long it takes for a new behavior. Uh, pattern to set in, right? So it can be 30 days, it can be uh, 12 months, it can be on a range. And so as mental health practitioners, you know, people who are guiding groups of people towards healthier goals, for us, how do we make that time as effective as possible? And that's going to be through deliberate practice opportunities.
0: I love that you said that. So really important for people to understand it. And oftentimes me and Andrew use language analogies because we both speak a couple languages. We lived abroad. Uh, it's it's makes sense to a lot of people. A lot of people think that children learn languages faster, for example, and they don't. Like I was actually just talking to my daughter a couple of days ago and she said, or she said, I, I had understood that. I'm like, it. And she's 10 years old, right? I mean, she's native English speaker and still making mistakes in English. It's really common for English children to make mistakes up until about 12 years old. Adults aren't generally going to make those same mistakes. Now, their accents are different. We we can get into that. Uh, it's, It's a different issue. It's not really learning related. But for children, it takes them a decade or more to learn their native language. Adults can learn to speak fluently a second language in as little as 12 months. Because they focus, they have conscious attention, and they really pay attention. So that conscious attention is really critical. Some people are better at really paying attention to the nuance. So for example, when I'm in a second language and I hear something different from the way that I thought it was said or the way I would structure that sentence, I pick up on it and I stop and say, hey, wait, can you say that again? Why did you say it that way? Can you say it this way, the way I say it? Yes or no. Uh, Other people I've seen learning languages don't do that. They just really don't pay attention. So that first point and what we'll kind of talk about is we give some explicit examples of how to use CBT within the session is conscious attention is critical to create these new pathways and to have learning take place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that ties into the motivation behind it as well, right? And so when, it, when an adult is learning a language, they're usually doing it for a reason, whether they're cramming for an upcoming trip, or they're wanting a new job opportunity, you know, perhaps, you know, when you want to apply for the CIA, you, you might need to learn Arabic or uh, Chinese or a, a different language or, or what have you. And so yeah, conscious attention and motivation, critical. So let's start with that example there.
0: Like my daughter says, says, I understand it. And we know that's wrong. So what most parents will do is say, no, honey, it's understood. And they say, okay. And then the next day they say, understand it again. Really common. So why is that happening? There, there's two reasons. So one, it's this unconscious pathway that's really been built up. Again, we're not thinking about it consciously. That, that language pattern has just become ingrained in a proceduralized learning process, as we talk about on these podcasts. So the same thing is happening with a negative thought pattern. I have a failure in my life, whether it's small or big, and my unconscious automated response, which operates much, much faster, three to 10 times faster than conscious thought, comes into play. And so I have to stop and correct that, but I need to do it myself. So the brain needs what's called a prediction error, and you have to have conscious attention around that prediction error to start making that change. So when someone else corrects you, it doesn't work in the same process in the brain. The brain's not changing or making the changes it needs to make unless you start really practicing and trying to make that a habit. So what's better is rather than therapist saying, hey, that's not the right way to do it. You need to restructure that negative thought. You want to pause and say, hey, John, Is that what we talked about? What was that sound like? Oh, that's kind of negative self-talk, right? You know, is there a way you could restructure that? You want them to come up with the answer. Just like the same thing I do with my daughter. I say, Jasmine, is that how we say that? And she'll pause and she'll go, oh, no, 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 understood. And so now she's starting to create that pathway herself. And she's starting to recognize the error consciously herself, which is what we want patients to do. We want them to say, hey, first thought wrong. And we don't want to be telling them that they want to be recognizing that they're on their own. So our goal is always to get them to recognize their own error because that helps the neurological
1: rewiring process. Elicitation techniques are are critically important because they help patients do just that. They help them realize on their own and make the connection. And I know the temptation is there. Like silence can be uncomfortable, especially in a group setting when a bunch of eyes are on you. But, you know, patients will process at different speeds. And always give them ample time to realize their own errors.
0: And then, neurobiologically, again, everyone's very unique, right? They come to their own understanding and their own systems and processes and thought patterns from very, very unique pathways. If I say to you every negative, negative self talk, where you learn that, how you learn that is very different. And so, that's why it's really important to get the patients to recognize their own uh, errors and then correct them because their pathway is different from your pathway, different from the pathway of the patient across from them. And so by us just correcting that for them, it's not working within their own neurobiological pathways the same way as it is in ours. So for them to have it work within their own systems and schemas, they've got to come up with it. So why don't we talk about elicitation a little bit, Andrew? What are some elicitation techniques that we can use within a a therapy setting that helps patients come
1: to their own conclusions and correct some of their own errors? I would say the best elicitation techniques are open-ended questions. Tell me more about what you're thinking. How might we do this differently? How might we approach that differently? Or Tell me about your thought pattern that led you to this idea or behavior. It's it's really putting patients in, in the driver's seat. And this will also, you know, if you're not telling them what to do, also that resistant behavior goes down as well. So just giving them control, giving them chance to reflect and be introspective is the best route.
0: Okay. So great example when we're thinking through elicitation again, we really want the patients to recognize their own potentially not helpful thought patterns or just different ways that we wanna help them change what they're thinking. So let's say in that whole negative self-talk component of it. So they say something negative about themselves, they're talking, they're doing, you're doing your check-in, whatever it is, and they come up with a story and it's very clear that they're going down this cycle on this loop of, of negative self-talk. And so you can pause them and say, you know, is there a way that we could maybe think about that differently? And maybe they get it, maybe they don't, right? Because this is a skill that they're learning. It's not like, again, it's not knowledge. There's a difference between knowledge and skill. And so if they don't have the skill quite yet, they might need a little bit of prompting. Well, what did we talk about the other day? Or prompt the other patients in the room. Does anyone else have an idea of of maybe, is there a better way to talk about this? So you're trying to prompt everyone else because you want them learning at the same time, right? And practicing these skills. So you're trying to pull in other people. Other things that we'll use is, is prompts. So, well, okay, remember, remember what we talked about the other day? First thought wrong. Oh, oh yeah, I got, I got it. You're right, you're right. I am I'm going down this pathway. I need to stop myself. I need to think through it. Other things I like to use are visual cues. So if they're making a really common mistake, I'll often create a visual cue and I'll do something like, okay, negative thumb. Like, you know, and then like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Because as you get the visual cues, anything you can do to again. Give them as little support as possible. And that's how you always want to structure it. The first thing, just say, hey, can I pause you for a second? There's a different way we do this. That's not enough. Then you add in maybe a prompt to other patients. You add in a visual cue. But you're scaffolding. You're providing more and more support until they get it. And then finally, if they're just not able to get it, like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Why why are you telling me to stop and pause? Then you're saying, hey, remember we talked about negative self-talk and restructuring. Remember how we did that? Do you remember the components of negative self-talk restructuring? Um, So walking them through those different components again and then moving on. So that's a really important skill to be building within the sessions where you're always trying to provide as little support as possible because the more support you provide, again, the more they rely on you which we don't want. We want them to be able to be 100% independent so that when they're not in the therapy session, they're able to successfully navigate these negative self-thoughts uh, negative self thoughts or whatever skill that we're working on.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you brought up utilizing the rest of the group members. That's one one area I believe a, a lot of therapists could utilize a lot more because in fact, the best practice opportunities are usually going to be in pairs and small groups. And it's because patients come in with that different background knowledge. In authentic practice situations, you'll get different responses from, from each person. I mean, which is important because whether you're restructuring a negative thought around a work, around family, or you're creating an I statement to use with your boss versus your uh, significant other, you know, these, these are different contexts and therefore require different contextual practice. I do understand, though, it pairs and small groups, they can make people feel uneasy, right? Because things can quickly get out of control. But we do have some strategies to set up small group or paired practice opportunities that I can share. Yeah, why don't we step back just a second?
0: So we're looking at this Trying, we're trying to help build this other pathway in the forest, right? And so, Andrew, I mean, what we're we're getting into here is repetition. How do you build that pathway in the forest? You can't just walk it once. I got to walk it not just twice, a hundred times. Just like if I'm trying to learn to swim, I can't just get in the water and, you know, use a technique and flap my arms around and suddenly I'm swimming. I really need to practice again and again. And then there's a massive difference between being able to swim, being able to swim well, being able to swim competitively. And that's, Really what we're looking at when we look at those timelines we talked about, you know, 30 months to start a habit, a year to really start to stabilize your recovery, five years to be really, really successful. We're moving from just standard kind of ability to proficiency to expertise. So you're talking about how do we maximize repetition? Because what we want in the therapy session is not just knowledge transfer. That is not enough. It's not enough for me to know how to swim. I have to actually build that pathway by physically doing it. So we need the patients to physically build and mentally build CBT skills, incremental goal setting, meditation, self-regulation, assertive communication. All these are discrete skills that have to be built. So how do we start to do that with maybe pair and small group work?
1: Well, okay, good. I'm going to get into that a second. I want to highlight one thing that you said, because I think it is very, very important. Even the American Psychological Association acknowledges that deliberate practice is not the same as rote repetition. So rote repetition, which is simply repeating a task, it will improve performance a bit, but deliberate practice involves attention, rehearsal repetition, and it leads to new knowledge or skills that can be later applied and developed into more complex knowledge and skills. And that those can be applied to help ones deal with their life. So strategic thought and planning are required to execute deliberate practice, and the activities should involve everyone every time if possible. And so a, a couple of great activities that I like to think of are, you know, role plays, structured dialogues, collaborative problem solving. You know, these are all very, very useful to get patients practicing under various contexts and conditions. Uh, assigning different roles and emotional states to group members. This will not only help everyone prepare for unpredictable interactions outside of therapy, but they'll also help patients develop empathy for other points of view. Going back to what you said, as far as setting up those practice opportunities well, The first thing I think therapists need to realize is it might not go so well the first time, right? Especially if you're making significant changes to your regular routine in your groups, if it's a closed group, for example. But if patients understand what small group time is going to look like and sound like, they'll be more successful with it. So, you know, keep it up as things go on, you know, before you begin implementing, tell them what they're going to be doing and why model it if possible, And by establishing the routine, you're going to set patients up for success and the activity will be easier to run in the future. And make sure you're asking instruction, checking questions, which means you're, you're verifying that everybody knows what to do when it comes to that practice. Make sure to provide support or give options or choices for completing a task. You know, I've mention all the time, the diversity that we see within groups, whether it's someone who has ADHD or somebody who didn't graduate or is not a very strong reader. If if your practice activities involves someone writing out a dialogue, give them the option to either speak it out loud or write it down just to make sure you're meeting the needs of everyone in the room. And regardless of what the practice is, you know, debrief at the end of every practice session. So, you know, prompt patients to offer feedback, both positive and rooms for improvement or advice for the next session. Celebrate successes and name what patients are doing right. And you're going to be more likely to see it again and again. That's just human nature. And adults, children, human beings react very well to praise. And if you can be specific with what you like, what you like to see, what they're doing well, you will start to see those behaviors repeated.
0: I think I want to help all our listeners structure a potential session based on what you're talking about. So you mentioned a really important point that it's not just about rope repetition. And I love that because I have this story that I love from Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman's a famous uh, physicist. He did a lot with quantum mechanics and Anyway, hobby of mine, he was teaching in Brazil. And again, Andrew and I have lived abroad. We've been into a lot of education systems in different places. And a lot of them are very rote memorization focused. And so what Feynman would do in his classes in Brazil is he'd go through these really complex mathematical formulas and they'd be able to rattle it off like that. They could create it. They could do the process, the system. And then he would take the formulas for refraction of light, for example. And then he'd ask him, he's like, well, let's say that I have a pair of sunglasses that are polarized. How would I figure out what's happening there? And he would just get silence. And so even though all of the students there could take these complex mathematical formulas and run through them, they couldn't apply them in the real world because they had just done rote, memorized, you know, mechanical functionality There was no application so it's really critical that we structure sessions so that we're not just practicing something but we're practicing it in as close to a real world context as possible which is why the role plays the problem solving the project-based activities are so critical to success for our patients so starting off from uh, just a very very simple session overview The first thing that we want to do when we come into a session is obviously engage the patients in the room, get them going, get them connected to the topic or the skill set. And then we have to understand where they're at, because Andrew always talks about the diversity of the, the people in the room. So we want to build a baseline. So that's really where our elicitation comes in. Then we do our instruction on the topic. So this is how to restructure a negative thought. And you have to think through that, right? It's not as simple as just saying, say something positive you actually have to really get explicit with patients and say, look, we basically remove things like always and never, but it's not absolutist, it's very specific. And then we don't use personality traits. We use specific instances. So rather than say, I'm a loser, we say something like, I messed up yesterday at work. Facts, not feelings. Right, right, exactly. And then there's a third component to restructuring a negative thought, which is providing a counterexample. We're looking for that prediction error. So I messed up at work yesterday, but actually two weeks ago, I was very successful. My boss congratulated me. My coworkers congratulated me on a good job. And actually, I actually got an employee of the month three months ago. So I'm providing a counterfactual to help me restructure that negative thought in a believable way versus saying something like, well, I'm not a loser. I'm a winner. I'm not convincing myself, which is what I need to do. So you have to really provide direct instruction and understand what is the process for that because we want patients to do it correctly as well. The really, really important part when we're doing skill building is we're gonna do a lot of repetition, a lot of practice within the session with the patients. But the last thing that we want them to do is build a new pathway in the forest that's going off in the wrong direction. We need to make sure that they're building it correctly. So that's that's what you do in that direct instruction component is make sure that they've got all the pieces and then you're really working with them together to start to restructure some negative thoughts. So we do what's called a simple performance task, where I might have uh, negative thoughts up on the board. And then as an entire group, we're restructuring those together. And then we go back and we look at the three components that we had out there and say, hey, is this restructure? Is this Does this fit what we talked about? Yes, no, why not? Once we are confident that the patients have started to get it and they've really consolidated those components, Then we move on to repetition because again, we want them to start using it and using it correctly. And that's more mechanical, right? That's more of what we call a mid-level performance task. And then finally, we're moving on to this complex performance task where we're trying to mirror reality, which is our role plays, our complex problem solving, our project-based learning. And to Adrian's point, that involves what we call interleaving. So it is very different for me to restructure a negative thought when I'm feeling down on myself, versus when someone very close to me is calling me a loser and telling me I'm never gonna be good at anything versus in a job situation where I'm stressed out and my income is dependent on this and my livelihood is dependent on this job and my boss is mad at me. All of these are different contexts for the brain and the brain is very contextual. It's not like it takes a skill set and just applies it globally. It really thinks, and I'll give an example on this one, Uh, again, You will use language learning. I had a friend of mine who spent a lot of time in Spain. And so she learned Spanish while she was there. She was from a small town in the US. So, you know, we don't have taxis in small towns, right? It's not a thing in the US, but where she was in Spain and Madrid, they took taxis all the time. So she's constantly using her Spanish in the taxis, moved back to the US, moved to New York and started taking taxis. Well, when she would get in the taxi, she would start speaking in Spanish because that was her brain's context for the taxi, right? Her brain thought English for everything else, but Spanish for taxis. And that's how your brain works. So we want to give patients as much practice as possible in different contexts so that when they go outside into the real world and have all these stressful situations and negative thoughts coming at them in different contexts, they're starting to default to the new pathway that we've helped them
1: build and restructuring those negative thoughts in a positive way. Yeah. I'm going to give one more example. And I, again, I'm probably just going to break break it down one more time for the listeners in case it's new information for them. Okay. So suppose the topic were I statements. Okay. In that case, would it be enough to just explain what an I statement is and have each patient create one or transform an existing accusatory statement into an I statement? No, no, not at all. Anyone can do that in isolation and with guidance, but it's much different if you have someone screaming in your face. Okay, so how should we establish an authentic practice opportunity to build I statements? The first step would be the therapist would ensure that everyone in the group can demonstrate understanding of the purpose of an I statement, okay, how they can be used to deescalate confrontation, which is a common trigger, right? Aid in assertive communication, help rebuild relationships, which is, you know, a goal that many patients have, pretty much all patients have right they, there are relationships that are important to them. Next they maybe would compare good and bad examples this is this would help address any points of confusion right you put some uh, the therapist can put some some good examples and some bad examples on the board and say, you know how about this one? how about this one? you can read the room this is give you this will give you uh, that chance again to make sure they're on the the correct path you know you don't want them building it in the wrong direction. So once you see that the group reasonably grasps the, the content, then we can start the magic of the procedural pathway, okay, which is completely patient-centered learning. So the deliberate practice uh, activities will work best when delivered in like a series of increasing complexity. Uh, I think this is what, Nick, you were mentioning before with the the different stages of learning, right? We don't want to start with something that is is too difficult or beyond what a patient can do uh, because they'll get frustrated, right? And we don't want that to happen. Um, so, for example, first activity might see group members split into pairs, uh, restructuring pre-made accusatory statements into I statements. So the collaborative work there is beneficial because partners will help each other fill in gaps that they might have, whether it be a knowledge or a skill gap. When they're working together, they're going to get further than uh, than by themselves, right? Two heads are better than one. A uh, follow-up exercise might include uh, dialogue cards containing confrontational situations that patients will read to each other but they'll have to create the i statements on the spot right so this is this is getting a little bit more complex where i have this card and i'm and on this card is dialogue right it's an argument i'm having an argument but the i statements aren't written there for me and so in the in the midst of this heated confrontation i'm having to change these Sentences into I statements on my own, right? That's another level of complexity. Finally, patients would be able to practice their dialogue in an unscripted role play using situations and relationships from their real life. So, this last activity is the most beneficial because it allows for practice in as close to real world situations as possible. And it should be repeated as much as possible with different group members, because as we mentioned before, everybody has their own unique perspective. And if you have a scenario, um, like, let's say it's a a conversation that you're going to have with your parent or significant other about uh, a curfew, right? Maybe you disappointed them so many times, or you feel that they're just really, really upset. And so they've allowed you back in the house, but only if you're home by nine o'clock every single night, right? And so let's say you want to have a conversation about extending that time, but you you think it's going to get heated, right? And you want to make sure you, are, you have those I statements ready to go, but also that you can create them on the spot in case you don't know really where the conversation's heading. So if you have that conversation multiple times with different partners, that's that real authentic practice, because you don't know what each person's going to say, right? And that is the best example that I can give for I statements of how to organize that in a small group to um I'm sorry, individual to a small group with levels of increasing complexity, but also getting closer and closer to real life scenarios.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I find a lot of therapists, uh, this is very new to them, this process of building skill sets and moving from direct instruction to simple performance to uh, complex performance tasks. So an example I like to give is just think about like learning to ride a bike. When you first learned to ride a bike, your parent taught you, right? They showed hey, put your hands here, you're gonna put your feet on the pedal, you're gonna move like this, right? And then they modeled it for you. They showed you how to do it. They give you a really direct instruction. Then you got on the bike with training wheels, right? So very simple, you don't have to do a lot. It's very restricted in its environment. Then they remove the training wheels, but they still held on to the back of your bike as you tried to balance and everything yourself, right? So increasing complexity. And then finally they let go and they let you do it everything combining all the different micro skills, the balance, the gyration, the pushing, right? Together. And that's what we want to do with the patients in, in the sessions as well as from direct instruction to simple to mid to complex performance tasks. And Andrew, I, I want to focus on that component around pair work and and small group work. So we've talked about it a little bit. I just really wanna emphasize again that the value of small group or pair work, because a lot of therapists don't do this. They haven't been trained to break people off into groups. And so why are we doing that? Because again, repetition, they have to be practicing it in live context. It is not enough for one person to be talking and 11 other people to be listening. That is not building the skill sets. So this is why it's really important to put them into pairs and groups. And sometimes we have to explain the reasoning behind that because patients aren't used to it either. They haven't had other therapists doing that. So why? Well, again, we want you to be successful outside of the therapeutic setting and we're not going to be there. You're going to need to get support from other people. You're going to need to learn with other people. You're going to have to have these contacts of other people, you know, coming at you with stressful or supportive situations. So it's absolutely critical that we are maximizing the amount of, Skill practice repetition that they are getting in the session as much as possible, and that's why it's important to do these pair and small groups. So, when we think of pair and small groups, Andrew, do you have any suggestions in terms
1: of just different ways to pair people up or parts of the session they should be using that? So, as far as pairing people up, there's a couple different ways that we can do that, we can group them randomly of course you can group them by skill ability or strategy now this will be very difficult to do maybe on the first time you run a group but after you get to know them a little bit you'll you'll notice who's strong in some areas and and who you know who needs a little bit more help now even when it comes to grouping by skill there's a couple different approaches to take you can you can group someone who is a little bit weaker in a particular area with someone who's stronger so they can help guide each other You can also group the strong ones together to help them advance at a faster rate, while you work with the weaker ones that are paired together. You can group them by interest. I mean, I I would say when you're when you're looking at establishing groups, mix it up as much as possible, right? And so I know Nick. One that you do is find someone who has a similar hair length to you, and so that's a completely that's a completely random one. But you don't want people to get too comfortable in whatever groups they're used to. It's okay to let them pick sometimes, but I would just say mix it up.
0: Yeah. I I just did a couple too related to that where you'll line up uh, in order of the person who took the drink at the youngest age, the latest age or length of sobriety, right? It's a very interesting conversation starters for people in a therapeutic setting. And then you just pair them up with the person next to them right after they form that line. But randomizing is super important. We want to make sure that You're building culture by getting people connecting with other people in those sessions, and so that they become supportive. And you're also providing them, because we're thinking, what's the micro skill for the session, but also these metacognitive kind of macro skills of being able to recognize and support other people, right? How do they communicate? How do they support other people? How do they get along? How do they recognize what you're actually talking about in terms of what is good, what's bad. And so when they start to recognize in others, it helps them recognize it in themselves. So by having that feedback component built in is extremely valuable. There's all these additional value adds, so small pair and group work. And so, yeah, you can just count people off. You can line them up. You can do funny things like have them count off by pineapple oranges and put the pineapples together and the oranges together. Whatever you want to do, but as long as you're you're varying who they're connecting with and getting things moving and building a culture and providing ample practice opportunity. And I think the last thing I would add there is, again, when we think about our structure from direct instruction to simple, mid, complex performance tasks, the mid and the complex are definitely where we want to be using pair and small group work a lot of the time. Uh, The direct instruction, it's more all group. Uh, The simple performance task is often all group where you as the therapist are leading that and really kind of making sure everyone's on the same page. So we break off to pairs and small groups at mid and complex. And those are the majority of the session. So I just wanna make that clear that the direct instruction should be less than 10 minutes of the session. That's your goal. If it's taking you more than 10 minutes to get the direct instruction phase, your objective is too complex you've got, you're bitten off too much to chew for the patients. So keep under 10 minutes and then maximize the rest of your time, your 40 or 50 minutes, however you guys structure your sessions
1: uh, to really be practice focused. Absolutely. And just remember, you know, as you're trying some of these things for the first time, it's completely normal to make mistakes. I mean, I've been practicing facilitation and delivery for the better part of the last 15 years. And even three weeks ago, I was running a workshop over at Lamar State College at Port Arthur, and I forgot to ask instruction checking questions. And so I sent everyone off into small group exercises. Uh, They were trying to gather as many supporters as possible for a solution to a problem that I gave them. Um, So to give a bit of background, we were discussing the best ways to deliver open-ended questions to Uh, a group of diverse people. And so patients would or participants would start by writing their method on a piece of paper. And they would write down a piece of supporting evidence or like a persuasive statement that, you know, in anticipation that they're going to try to get people to join with them and join their cause. Then they had to mingle, uh, find someone uh, to convince them to ditch their own idea and join their team or create a hybrid solution. So the point is, is uh, once they were done, now. Uh, A team of two would only have one solution, and then they would repeat that process and have a team of four and so on. And the idea is you're, you know, as a team of two meets with another team of two, we got both people talking and engaging and actively trying to persuade each other. Um, And the activity itself in itself is great. I mean, it involves numerous skill development areas involving communication, interpersonal skills. Um, Everyone is engaged with the task at hand. So the issue is, is that I'm asking participants to do a lot here, right? There are multiple steps to this exercise. First, you have to think of something with evidence, then you've got to write it down, then you've got to find somebody else to convince them, and it keeps going. And so my mistake was I forgot to ask the instruction checking questions. Luckily, I caught it early because I am always moving around and observing and providing support where I can, you know, listening for sticking points or areas of contention. And so I found that two of my original pairs thought that they were answering the open-ended question example, not figuring out the best way to deliver it. So it wasn't the end of the world. You know, I brought everyone back quickly to clarify, so we didn't lose more than two minutes or so. Um, But again, group time is important, especially when we're talking about practice opportunities. So the more time to practice, the better. And those kind of mistakes that take away two minutes here and there, those will add up over time. Uh, But to think about that same practice activity, if the topic were building a continuous recovery plan or focusing on uh, trigger responses to common stressors, family work, different scenarios, you know, you could follow a similar structure uh, and stop it when there's two or three options left. So you can you can use that activity I just described as a great practice opportunity in one of your sessions. So, I mean, let's say the example uh, is the conversation gets Uh, contentious at a family holiday dinner, right? We're around the holidays. That's a good example. Uh, It's always good to have a plan B or a plan C, right? So if leaving the house, going going for a walk, clearing your head, calling a support person, if all of these receive a good amount of uh, evidence through exercise, right? You know, a lot of people are joining on with those ideas. Great. Well, then use them all, right? Employing all of them are going to make it more likely uh, that you'll be successful. Right. And so the point is, is having the conversations over and over again with people and uh, different responses. You're going to be reinforcing those neural links. Right. That new pathway through the forest that we've been talking about. And you're also going to get an increased buy in right to the reality that it'll, it'll work because they're repeating that evidence again and again and again. Yeah, exactly.
0: I think as we wrap up here, I just wanna reemphasize the fact of what we're really looking at is why is CBT efficacious? Is It's really about the discrete skill building that CBT enables. And so where some therapists get hung up is on the processing component of it, where they're like, well, there's all this stuff happening in our group sessions and there's trauma and there's negative memories and there's all these negative thought patterns that are coming up. That is just a part of the session. And again we need patients to be successful outside the session so taking all of the group's time to help one person process their emotions is not as valuable as saying okay well if it's a crisis situation deal with that right you, you know your patients you know what's important right deal with it but if it's not a crisis situation look at that and say okay well what discrete skills can i give here if they're having problems and constantly looping into these negative thoughts I should focus on restructuring negative thoughts today. If they're really hung up on a conversation they had with their partner where it was unsuccessful and they ended up in a big fight, I should focus on assertive communication today. But then we're building that into the session plan. And rather than just talking about what happened, we're saying, hey, let me give you a tool. Let me give you something that will actually make you successful or more successful in this situation when it happens again, because it will. And when it happens again, I'm not gonna be there as a therapist. You're gonna need to be able to do this on your own. So very important that we're thinking past just processing and realizing that processing in and of itself is a skill set for the patients that they need to be able to have without your support. So your job is to structure those sessions, to create a safe space, to have that therapeutic alliance so that they start to practice and maximize that practice so that they're able to do it at the end. And that's
1: what we really wanna think about with CBT. Absolutely. And the reality that processing does not happen in a vacuum. You can absolutely process while you're skill building and planning for a better future, not just focusing on an event from the past.
0: That's exactly right. And again, you got, you got 11 other people in the room. So if you really feel you need to work with that person, great. Get people thinking about restructuring negative thoughts or incremental skill building or whatever the CBT skill is you're working on, pair them up, get them going, get them practicing And then that's a great opportunity for you to pull that person aside and maybe do a little bit more processing with them while everyone else is still getting as much value as possible out of that group. Because if they're just listening to someone else kind of spew out whatever's going on in their lives, there's not a lot of value there. They have to be practicing something on their own. Passive listening is,
1: is not a path to recovery. Well said that's going to do it for us today. We're going to wrap up now. If you'd like to contact myself or Nick, we are very active on LinkedIn. You can also reach us at grouptherapycertification.com or email at certification at grouptherapycertification.com.
0: Thanks everyone.